Welcome to episode three of Brain Buzz. I'm your host, Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we're going to be talking with uh, two of our esteemed colleagues, uh, Gabriel Brooks and Mario Ferrari from the Center for Gambling Research at UBC. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Do you guys just want to quickly introduce yourselves and tell us what lab you're in and, and the work that you guys are doing right now? Hi, I'm Mario Ferrari. I'm from the Center for Gambling Research at UBC. Um, I'm currently a first-year PhD student in the clinical psychology program at UBC, and uh, my work focuses broadly around looking at the relationship between gambling activities and hormone levels. Yeah, hello. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm Gabriel Brooks, and I'm also at the Center for Gambling Research out at UBC. Uh, Second-year PhD student uh, in the clinical psychology program, which you know, splitting means I'm splitting my time between clinical work and research. As far as the research goes, I'm broadly focusing on two things, one being scale creation and the other looking at how schizotypal personality uh, in particular may interact with gambling beliefs. So give us a little bit of detail about what your, what your first ambition was or what was the first thing you guys wanted to do when you guys were young? Did you guys want to be clinical psychologists studying gambling? I'll ask, I'll ask Gabriel first. Uh, yeah. All right. Okay, yeah, so uh, I had no desire to be involved in psychology at all at an early age, um, maybe because, you know, my dad is a psychologist, but uh, my original ambition was marine biology, and I can't tell you why that was the case, but from the age of 12 to 14, it was, you know, that's what I wanted to do, definitely, and then around 14, I learned you really don't want to mess with the ocean, keep, you know, keep a nice safe distance from that ocean. And I ended up moving, um, you know, toward more sensible things, did a lot of hard sciences in high school and thought, hey, maybe engineering. But I learned that was my cup of tea and then kind of fell in love with psychology around the second year of undergrad. And so, so what about engineering kind of deterred you away from that, that kind of career? Path? It was just things from learning how to appropriately write the alphabet to um, spending a whole lot of time on projects that I realized there was just no passion for. That made me think, well, what is the passion for then? And I took a whole bunch of first year courses, thought, hey, this thing called, you know, archaeology is pretty cool. But then I realized the career prospects in archaeology aren't the greatest. Uh, Psychology ended up being the one that stuck made my way through the first year courses, took some upper level, and then, you know, the rest is kind of history there. Awesome. And Mario, how about yourself? Well, it's kind of a funny thing. I, I distinctly recall that when I was a kid, you know, you know, you and your friends, you talk about, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, <laughs> my friends were all like, I want to be a police officer. Some of the less, more questionable friends were like, I want to rob things. You know, you know cops and robbers. But I was always thinking, I want to be a scientist. Now, I certainly deviated from that path for a while, you know, after high school. I, I was in a band. I wanted to pursue, um, you know, the arts and, and get into media, creative media and things like that and make music and, and video. Uh, but eventually I relented to my parents and, uh, <laughs> and went to university um, initially to become an accountant. So why are you not doing my taxes right now? <laughs> what what kind of pulled you away from that? Same thing for Gabe, I guess. You guys both had these ideas that you, 
I feel like this is a common thing for undergrads to go in thinking I'll do this and it just it changes immediately. Um, so what was that? What drew you to clinical psychology from accounting? Well, I think in that in that sort of identity moratorium, I realized that it was someone else's idea for me to become an accountant. And I started to kind of survey first year courses and and get a sense of what it was that I liked. And it wasn't until I started to take psychology classes that I realized like, wow, this is it. This is something that, you know, this is the class where I go in, I sit down and I don't even worry about how I'm gonna study or what the grades are because it's just so fascinating. Now, now I'm kind of curious. curious because I know for me personally and, and to other people that I've talked to, other undergraduates, um, they really disliked psychology the first year that they took it at least were you in that same boat or did you come into it just loving it i i get what they're saying you know the first year psychology <laughs> classes are quite tough it's not this this idea where where you know this idealized picture of it where you go in and you get to learn about all these cool things you're actually sitting down you're taking really rigorous exams uh writing essays and for, for a lot it's not a really fun go at things but for me it was just it felt intuitive. It felt like a subject that I had no trouble paying attention to uh, in a mix of a bunch of other subjects that I just couldn't stay awake in. <laughs> Definitely. I feel you there. Now, as a bit of an aside, both of you guys are from the Lower Mainland. You both grew up in this gentle neck of the woods. Um, so did you guys go straight from uh, high school into your undergrad and then straight into grad school was the time off Mario you said that you took a little mm -hmm. bit of time off um how about yourself Gabriel honestly I would probably be not what you call an exceptionally motivated high school student and you know did my time at community college before transferring to UBC after my undergraduate at UBC I ended up taking a two-year break kind of just give myself a bit of a rest, relaxation period, but also really make the determination on where I wanted to go. And, you know, I, I love psych and I wanted, I was fairly sure that's the direction I wanted to go, but I also was sort of thinking, hey, maybe law school would be a trajectory to take. Um, I find law interesting. I thought that would be, you know, a relatively good career. It's a bit shorter of a training program too. And being in the fourth year now of this program, you know, that time starts to wear on you a little bit. But, you know, all in all, I have to say that uh, clinical psych especially feels like it was the right choice to make. And yeah, that's sort of my path here. Uh, because you guys are both in the same lab and you're doing similar yeah. research, um, what was the moment you guys knew you wanted to do gambling research? Was there a, mo a, like a certain moment that you guys can pick out of the air <laughs> you know I don't know if I can pick a particular moment out of the air just something that told me hey gambling is what I want to do uh, and you know to be fair I actually started my graduate work in another lab where we looked at um, you know schizophrenia and what I'm still doing a bit with a schizotypal personality in relation to um, you know various tasks employing electroencephalography but although that was the direction I initially started out in I've always just been very interested in the concept of behavioral addictions, gambling in particular. Um, I've been familiar with gambling for a while in my life. I know people who gamble too much, who you know, gamble at a point where they can sort of manage it just for entertainment purposes. And it's always been an area that I thought 
well, if I could study this, you know, maybe it's something I would study. And then the opportunity came up and I decided, yeah, this is for me for sure. Uh, and, and for you, Mario? For me, the idea came about when I was looking for schools to go to for grad school, um, looking for potential supervisors. I had always been, uh, up until that point, interested in studying the relationship between hormones and decision making or cognition more broadly. And I wanted to take that into the realm of, of psychopathology. And when I kind of discovered that Luke was coming to UBC, Luke, my, my supervisor, um, I thought, what better opportunity to study those things in a population that's clinical? Um, gambling is just, it's, it's ripe with decision-making. You're making decisions at, at every turn, and I thought that this could be just a great vector for this interest. So from here, let's go into uh, kind of the beginning of the discussion on the work that you guys do. Uh, the segment that's currently titled, Are We Going to Let This Slide? So... In this segment, we want to kind of discuss kind of popular ideas, misconceptions about the work that um, our guests do. And uh, you guys have been able to come up with a couple of really cool ones that we'd love to talk with you about. So, uh, Gabriel, do you want to start with yours? Uh, yeah. So there's the idea in, you know, if you look at maybe popular characterizations of gambling disorder in film, you know, it kind of comes out to... Uh, exhibit people often as the sort of you know morally flawed or degenerative type person which is of course not really true it's really pejorative it's a really yeah. really rough look at things and, and you know even if you look at the diagnostic statistical manual of mental disorders over time they've tried to take out some of those undertones it, used to be called pathological gambling, but pathological <laughs> gambling doesn't have, you know, a good, uh, you know, connotation to it. And now that's been replaced by gambling disorder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's read that one. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> so, so the point that you're making is that the way that it's portrayed in the media or in movies is not necessarily how it is in real life. So how is it in real life if, if these like if it's being portrayed poorly how could they better portray it in your opinion well i'll turn this back over to you what do you think what's your stereotypical idea of a gambler or a problem gambler an elderly person probably 70 plus and they're gambling at the casino four or five times a week for hours on end and they might not even be spending money that they actually have or it might have been money that they've saved that's that's my that's my uh, and what yeah, do you think it yeah perception of what a problem gambler would and, look and like what's your perception me? of what's driving that behavior in that elderly person you just mentioned like why are they out there gambling every day i can i can maybe speak to that a little yeah. bit in a previous life um i worked at a bank and i occasionally saw people who i would probably classify as being problem gamblers um and it would it, i don't know i i feel like the rush itself would be part of what they were there for and and it was the rush to me when i saw them come in because i knew that it was either going to be a day that they were writing a really big check or cash in a really big check and it, it almost wore off on me a little bit like i i got sort of tingly when i saw them walk in the door so the other perception that i would have if it's not that perception would be that the person that likes to gamble is willing to bet everything uh even if they don't have it and up to the point where they may lose 
all of their their monetary value or their their like real estate or like willing to bet the house essentially <laughs> on the next round of roulette kind of thing that's my perception of a problem gambler or house how it's perceived too. at least <laughs> yeah and or yeah they're not aware like we all know that the house always wins but they don't seem to be aware of that or they're just trying to beat the house all the so time. there i think there are three ideas in that that are really important and the last one you just mentioned is this idea of uh, distorted cognitions that they maybe they don't get a sense of the odds or they think that the odds are always in their favor that's a really good example of of gambling related cognitive beliefs or distortions um when we think about them they are distortions because they're simply not true but in the moment uh gamblers or problem gamblers more specifically do tend to get thoughts like this and they may not be those specific thoughts but they do tend to have distorted beliefs around gambling uh, and the outcomes so, so with that in mind do you think that the uh us sort of us being the global us seeing these people or knowing that these people have these distorted thoughts do you think that could be feeding into this perception of them as being flawed people you know let's make comparison to some of those you know stereotypes and stigma that you see with substance abuse so you know let's say you're going for a walk downtown and you see someone who looks like they're probably struggling with substance abuse you might have a variety of thoughts a lot of people might have the thought of like hey look at this person here on the side of the road um you know just coming out of um, heroin use why can't they get their life together and, you know, that kind of stigma of it's something, it's a choice they're making, kind of to your comment of there was grandma making the choice to go to the casino every day. But, you know, how much control do they really have in that choice? And that control might be eroded away at times by things like these beliefs that people have. If someone thinks that, well, you know, I have some techniques that allow me to beat the house, in their mind, their perception, it's a smart move to go to the casino. And... You know, Mario, you can talk a little bit about this too. When, you know, we come from a clinical perspective of treating gambling disorder, often there's a heavy amount of psychoeducation to try to dismantle these beliefs. That's one method of um, sort of trying to get around it by having people learn that these beliefs that they hold may not necessarily be accurate uh, reflections of the reality of those games they like to play. Now, of course, I think the literature also suggests that that alone doesn't always work too well. I'm assuming the way that we set this this segment up is to determine whether or not it's okay to do this as a psychological phenomenon. And I imagined, I imagine there's only one answer. Yeah, it, it, exactly. <laughs> there's going to be more than just misconstrued beliefs that lead people to gamble. There's going to be more than just, you know, distress and trauma that lead people to gamble. And some people may just make the bad choice that hey, let's lose a lot of money gambling too. If there was one take-home thing I think we're trying to say here, it's that don't write off all people who suffer from problem gambling as just making poor life choices, much like you should not do that for people who use substances or any other type of difficulty they may have in their life. There's a story behind everybody, and yeah. it's not just one reason that you, can, you can't categorize a whole group of people no matter what, regardless of what it is, right? Mm -hmm. and, and even getting back to kind of what we do here, there's quite a substantial literature to suggest that, you know, there are biological influences for why some people turn to gambling or substances. Uh, and so, you know, there is quite a medical model to explain a lot of these yeah. things. Now, we don't want to rely on the medical model because, well, there are certain problems that go along with that. But, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, 
you know, it, it's it's a challenge for these people. They do fa- they do face a unique challenge in part due to you know biological or or um, you know personality dispositions, things like that. Right. Um, so I was hoping that you could just give us a little elevator pitch of what you do, the work that you that you're involved in. Mm-hmm. So overall, uh, I do a lot of hormone research in the context of gambling behavior and, and decision making and, and all things, uh, you know, in, involved in that. Um, and I look at the, the relationship between hormones and gambling kind of as a two way street. And so maybe I'll ask you this quickly. When, when you think about, you know, my research, my research is being related to hormones and gambling. What does that bring to mind? Well, I guess the way that I would see it would be that testosterone will probably increase your likelihood to think that you could win the next game. Like just come thinking from a male perspective, uh, well, testosterone. Breaking that down to kind of its most basic elements is testosterone does something to behavior or decision making uh, as a subset of behavior. Um, and you know what? I think there's quite a lot of literature to suggest that testosterone can do that whether it's uh, endogenous fluctuations, so you know your body's own natural fluctuation in testosterone, or um, an exogenous or an, an administered dose. Um, there's quite a bit of research to suggest that increased testosterone relates to uh, risk-taking uh, in a number of different ways. But when I mention my research as looking at the bi-directional relationship, what I mean is that I'm also interested in how gambling contexts or games can affect our own hormones. And so this is a bit of a different topic for most people, I think. Well, how does that work? How You're saying that doing something can affect my hormone levels, and absolutely that's the case. And we can see this in a lot of different ways. I mean, presumably you've all been stressed at one point or time. You've done something that's <laughs> been stressful. <laughs> Once for me, Kyle's been stressed a couple more times. I, I was stressed before we started recording. I'm still stressed. Um, but yeah, this is this is a classic example of how uh, the stress hormone cortisol fluctuates. Now, it, it has a daily rhythm, so it fluctuates on its own. Um, but we can do things that get us in situations where we, we become really stressed and that hormone will go up. And there's an evolutionary reason for that. But aside from that, it can change the way we think and behave uh, and feel. Uh, and it can, you know, have kind of a feedback effect on what we do. So these are the kinds of relationships relationships I'm I'm interested in in gambling contexts. That's very interesting. Oh, that's, yeah, that's really badass. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> like, it really is. I don't think I ever think about uh, the way that, um, you know, playing a game or something, you know, which is, I guess, what gambling is, right? I never think about that as having an impact on my own testosterone. I know I feel yeah. good if I win. I feel bad if I lose. But I never think of it beyond that. So it's really fascinating to sort of step back and say, whoa, there's there's a lot going on within the brain and within the body that's driving those feelings and driving um, sort of behavior before and after. And from a health psychology perspective, I know there's a lot of talk about the mind-body connection, right? And so that plays into that perfectly in the sense that feeling like you're winning a game or, or having that kind of feedback psychologically can impact how your body actually reacts, right? Um, so it's really interesting. Yeah, so you're kind of alluding to, uh, at least with testosterone, uh, an effect or a phenomenon that we call the winner-loser effect, where uh, 
classically in competitions between other, you know, between people, uh, winners will experience increases in testosterone and losers will experience uh, decreases or maybe their levels will kind of stay the same. Uh, and this has been seen in men and women, but this is one thing I'm particularly interested in is, is how winning and losing, which these are ubiquitous uh, aspects of gambling, uh, how that might feed back to affect uh, testosterone levels, right. given you know the, the implications that testosterone fluctuations have for the kinds of risky decisions that they could be made afterward. Right. That's, in- that's really interesting. So I know we have two guests on today, so <laughs> I should probably get into Gabe, Gabriel's work here. Uh, Gabriel takes a little bit more of a less about the hormones and more about the personality factors that are impacting yeah. gambling, right? Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about, give us your pitch sure. for what you're doing and what's work here. Well, you know, when we were talking about misconceptions, let's just go back to that for a moment. We're talking about these beliefs people have and how they may not be accurate regarding gambling. And so we know that people hold those beliefs to varying degrees. I'm kind of coming from an individual differences point of view, in this case, personality. I want to know, are there some groups of people who are more likely to hold these uh, cognitive distortions about gambling uh, than others? And so if you look at the personality literature, um, you know, let's start with the big five. And these are your, you know, five aspects of uh, personality that are often used in research. We have openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And so in particular with conscientiousness and neuroticism, um, on the lower end of conscientiousness is associated with a higher tendency to hold some of these distortions and by extension, the, uh, you know, engage in problematic gambling behaviors. And then with uh, neuroticism as well. So uh, emotional instability, that those components of it are also associated with uh, an increase in maybe a, you know, problematic gambling behavior. So... Now, my research doesn't involve the big five. Uh, as I mentioned before, I was in a lab. We focused on schizophrenia, and in my case, schizotypal personality. I thought, hey, well, here are these distortions that people have that often seem a little bit like delusional thinking, um, maybe uh, disorganized thought. And then, you know, in some cases, people who might be trying to escape, uh, you know, difficult uh, interpersonal issues might go to gambling. Those three factors happen to be the three factors of schizotypal personality. So I was thinking that might be a candidate for something associated with, first of all, these beliefs, and second of all, problem gambling. Just so I know, and for our audience, schizotypal personality is related to schizophrenia in some way. What's the what is the difference between schizotypal personality and say schizophrenia? Yeah, yeah good good question. So schizophrenia. Um, someone's diagnosed with schizophrenia, they will have undergone an assessment and, you know, have a clinical diagnosis of schizophrenia and then one of the forms of it. Uh, with respect to schizotypal personality, much like, you know, the big five that were mentioned, you can think of these as um, a collection of traits that, you know, people endorse to varying degrees. And um, that means it's just out there in the general population, whereas, you know, schizophrenia is often thought of that as that categorical um you either have it or you don't but schizotypal personality some people may say uh they're prone to some delusional beliefs but not others or answer questions that indicate they have had 
um, you know, issues with disorganized thought or, um, you know, say, seeing references to themselves in media, stuff right. like that. So delusional, delusional thinking is in like, uh, Chris Angel mind freak believing in <laughs> or believing in uh was it uh mediums is that delusional or are we talking more like uh imagining things that are are realistically never going to happen like what yeah, yeah. yeah so you have a bit of the continuum yeah, more right of a there, continuum so. versus uh schizophrenia is meeting certain criteria where you can be diagnosed whereas mm -hmm. uh the t personality type would be more uh free range you can yeah. you can land on a certain uh, level of a range, like you're on a certain range of the schizophrenia. Yeah. yeah. So th these might be, you know, um, talk, uh, you know, thoughts that, hey, I have this lucky bracelet or necklace, and um, it has, you know, sort of a magic around it that helps me out at times. Or you're online, you're reading an article, and feeling, you know, this, you know, really, really speaks to me, but not just like it speaks to me because it's talking about something but like maybe it was particularly written with kind of you in mind but not to a level that you'd consider um clinical or um debilitating with that said if you have a group of people and you give them all you know say the standard schizotypal personality questionnaire those who endorse more of these traits tend to be struggling a little bit more in certain areas of their lives so it is associated with negative outcomes the more you endorse, um, but certainly it's something that you find in the general population. Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. So uh, going back to the work I do with it, um, what I've done so far is really just uh, looking at online surveys. That's the first step I've been taking. And sure enough, this association exists um, in some cases a little bit stronger actually than what we were talking about with those uh, other personality traits. So that's encouraging. Um, from there, uh, I want to do some in-lab research to see if maybe schizotypal personality actually uh, is associated with behavioral differences in how people gamble, play. So that's one aspect, uh, one area of my research. Another area that kind of, you know, I'm hoping to tie into that goes back to what we were talking about with these cognitive distortions. So, uh, Drake, if I were to ask you, you know, if you're going to the casino, let's imagine you go to the casino right now, and you're gonna you have twenty dollars that's How all do you... i'll ever have <laughs> <laughs> like, like you mentioned earlier you think the house has an edge do you believe that right now do you believe um that you know some tricks to get the slot machine to play out a little more for you i've never been good at slots i always play roulette uh, <laughs> and usually lose my twenty dollars right away um not myself particularly, but I've had different friends of mine tell me different strategies of yeah. winning. Uh, my favorite, if I can share my favorite, would be my friend Spencer. I'm gonna I'm gonna name drop because it's hilarious. <laughs> he said it's simple. The only way to win is you go in, you bet twenty dollars on red. If you lose that twenty dollars, you bet double the next time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if you lose that, you bet double that the next time. And eventually you're going to win and you'll never lose that way. <laughs> yeah, so so that, and that's like the classic. So your friend Spencer right there is really falling for that classic gambler's fallacy, which is, you know, if it's red five times in a row, Oh, that, that black is coming up, but they're independent events and, you know, past information doesn't influence the outcome of the next one. So he may end up just losing $20 
every time and go home a lot poorer. Uh, but, you know, the way you were framing that makes me think that you're not one to necessarily fall for some of these gambling uh, cognitive distortions yourself. That's not necessarily true, because I think the I think the point you're making is is there and in the back of your mind when you're when you're playing the game when i'm when i'm especially roulette it's it's a very simple game where it's you bet on black or you bet on red you can do more than that but it's essentially almost a 50 50 of getting black or red right and when i see five reds in a row i am telling myself there has to be a black coming up yeah the point you're making is that makes no sense statistically it could be red 30 times in a row and that doesn't mean that there's going to be a black the next time and so i think what we just said there kind of ties into you know that other aspect of research i'm talking about which is what you just said it doesn't make any sense and right now in this conversation you know it might be easy to buy into the fact that it doesn't make any sense but as you also mentioned it's in the back of your mind there so i'm interested in these sort of uh state cognitions have when people actually go to the slot machine go to the roulette table do those beliefs represent the beliefs they have outside in, you know, just day-to-day life about gambling? Um, seems to be that it doesn't actually, and that people may be very rational about their gambling beliefs on the day-to-day living, but once they're in front of that roulette table and see five blocks in a row, come on, it's got to be the right <laughs> yeah, coming yeah. up, right? Of course, yeah, and I, I think that's, that's a very interesting topic because that is decision-making at its finest. In the moment, decision-making yeah. is very yeah. different from taking a step back and talking about what you would do. Exactly. So... I have kind of a, a question about some of the methodology that you're using. Are you are you now working on creating a sort of like a state belief questionnaire? Is that part of what you're up to right now? Or Yeah, exactly. And so it's difficult, first of all, because you can't really administer a questionnaire when people are engaged in the moment, say, on slots. But um, the workaround there, which is imperfect, is to have them complete the questionnaire immediately after engaging in the right, slot machine right, right, activity. Right, right. So that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to create a questionnaire that directly references the play session they just had to, and then, you know, try to validate it to see if it might be tapping into those state beliefs versus the more so dispositional ones that we've generally been talking about already. Excellent. Now, um, Mario, how does that fit with what you do? Because you guys are obviously in the same lab, but you've been talking a lot about testosterone, hormones and all that. And so now how do you guys integrate that into sort of a coherent, cohesive uh, group of work that comes out of your lab? We don't. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> Our lab is not wrong. Perfect. Perfect. We work separately. We never talk to each other. You don't even really like <laughs> them. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm being facetious. But um, sometimes there isn't overlap uh, practically and conceptually in, in the things we do, but sometimes there is. And there's a bit of a divide between my work and Gabriel's work in that Gabriel's really focused on cognitions. And I'm, you know, not completely, but for the most part, trying to partial that out. And I'm, I'm looking more objectively at behavior and uh, in, in kind of the way that, that Skinner looked at it, um, at least initially, before we start to incorporate some of those things that might affect the behavior, like personality variables or any other kinds of, of mediators that you can think of. For people that don't know Skinner's work, can you give a quick... <laughs> <laughs> the Skinner box. Well, I mean, this is the, the school of behaviorism where they really said, we don't really care what goes on in the mind. We just want to observe the behavior and we can shape it by 
you know, changing the stimuli and, and, and so on and, and so forth. And so they really kind of treated the mind as, as like a, a black box and were more concerned with what they, they could actually observe. Um, so at least that's what I'm focusing on initially. And, and more specifically, I'm, I'm interested in, in what we might think of as a gambling habit. Um, but I mean, I, and anyone can answer this. What, what do you think a gambling habit is? I mean, it's certainly a term that's been used quite a bit, right? Man, uh, what is a gambling habit? I actually don't know. I've only been to the casino once. I, I have other vices and I don't need to add gambling to that list. So I think most people would say a gambling habit is it's a gambling problem. If you got a bad yeah, gambling right. habit, you, you just gamble. You, you do it too much. Maybe it's a habit. Um, but I'm more interested in, in how it's classically defined in, in psychological research, which is in terms of a behavior being kind of automatic, triggered. Uh, one of the key concepts is that usually a habit or a, a sequence of habitual behaviors are um, usually not, they're not, it's not something that you think about or want to do. And I think a good example is, let's say, I'll, I'll take an example from my own life. Is I, I drove to SFU, uh, where I did my undergraduate degree for years, um, to the point where this routine became habitized. I'm not sure if that's the word, but I think, I think it should be. Coin it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and oftentimes, not often, but I mean, occasionally when, when either a working memory is taxed or your ability to engage in goal-directed behavior is compromised in some way, be it stress, uh, you kind of default to that, that habitual behavior despite not wanting to. So I might want to drive to UBC, but find myself arriving at SFU instead. Right. And so I've just initiated a whole chain of, uh, of a habit sequence. Almost cruise control, just letting mm -hmm. your habits take control instead of your, your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I might be playing slots, and before I know it, I don't even realize I'm sliding another 20 into the machine because I'm just used to kind of feeding in to chase those losses. Exactly. And so I think that's looking at it uh, um, at a more large-scale level. Uh, what I really want to do is zoom in microscopically and see how people's behavior actually becomes more along the lines of what we would consider a, a habit. So do they speed up? Do they start to react to losses in a more automatic in non-conscious way, um, how does bet changing? How does how does that kind of respond to gaining more experience in a gambling game? That's, yeah, that's that's really fascinating. You guys, the fact that you guys are looking at these in completely different ways is just it's exciting. As a lab, as as lab yourself, you guys are doing a lot of really cool work within gambling, taking two different completely different approaches. And I imagine other students in your lab are doing the same thing, mm -hmm. taking this and going different different directions um as a as gambling researchers uh we kind of kyle and i clearly don't know anything about gambling uh and maybe our audience does audience doesn't know what are the what are popular theories that you guys are aware of in the gambling in gambling research uh that you feel like Someone that doesn't know a lot about gambling research should really get to know, or, or what are a few a few uh, few theories that you think are interesting or simple to explain within, or even just ideas like yeah, what yeah. Wh you know what kind of ideas should our audience uh, after they've listened to this what should they leave with what is the thing that they should be most aware of? 
so you know just one thing that comes to mind is is the idea of structural characteristics of you know the form of gambling so when we're talking about say a slot machine structural characteristics of that might be that you can choose how many lines you want to bet on um you might be able to press a button to prematurely terminate the spinning um and then be able to bet at a faster pace or get you know develop the false belief that maybe you can time it and stop it when right. things are lining up of course you can't uh so those would be structural characteristics of the machine itself that might draw you in and ha- you know try to perpetuate possible uh problematic gambling behavior if you look at something like the lottery a structural characteristic of that is well how often are they maybe once a week so you might spend $50 on a lottery ticket a week but it you know for some people that might be considered a gambling problem but for many like maybe they they can afford that $50 and they really can only bet that once per week so it's inherently slower and that's just one way in which these structural characteristics can influence your style of betting so when when you when you're saying structural characteristics what i'm also hearing and correct me if i'm wrong a lot of it has to do with sort of environmental factors mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well um and i think that's really interesting especially when you bring up uh say a lottery which i think a vast number of people probably uh, engage in the lottery they buy a ticket especially um you hear about it all the time especially in the states you know with like the powerball when it gets yeah, when it gets up into the triple digits and people are just going crazy mania. trying to mania yeah it's it's absolute craziness and it's it becomes worldwide news mm-hmm. um i think that's that's something that's really fascinating to think about in terms of um there are ways in which gambling companies and, and organizations are encouraging people to to gamble that are beyond you know just yeah exactly free drinks at the bar when you're there whatever it might be right and and not only that i mean just how ubiquitous gambling is Mm -hmm. in our country and in north american countries and across the world i mean i think here in canada about what's the statistic it's about 70 73 percent call it three quarters of canadians almost three quarters of of canadians of legal gambling age have gambled in the past year wow that's a huge number. Now, of course, that that factors in um, some things that we don't classically consider as casino gambling, things like lottery, raffles. Horse races. I bet you won't eat that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that would classify. <laughs> so we're talking about government-sanctioned sure. government sure. gambling sure. activities. Legal gambling. And just to tie into that three quarters or 70, 73% number too, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that a lot of people actually engage in some form of gambling. It's not like this activity that only a fringe population that, you know, people think down upon do. You know, I see four of us at this table right now, so three of us might have gambled in the last year, of course. That's a <laughs> distortion <laughs> statistics. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's it's. I think it's really interesting because uh, it kind of ties back to what you were talking about earlier when we were discussing, um, you know, the misconception of people as being flawed, gamblers as being flawed, and as, as having these um, characteristics that were all really negative. And it's like, well, you know, how could that be true? And if it is, we're talking about three quarters of our, of our population are people that we're assigning these attributes to, right? These negative uh, connotations are being assigned to them. Uh, it's really interesting to think about 
Um, yeah. So is there a certain type of or a method of gambling that is more or that invokes more of a problem when it comes to gambling? Like, is there does slot are slot machines more addicting than roulette or is uh, betting on hockey games versus other types of or betting on ponies? Are, are there are there certain types that are more apt to draw out some sort of gambling addiction or is it just it, it's kind of unknown at this point at this point no, i think we definitely have a clear picture of the game types that are associated with problem gambling um now moving beyond association gets a little bit trickier do we do we think that there are aspects of one game or another that draw people in or have more addicting properties i you know i would assume so um but at least going back to the associations that we know of, slot machines by and large seem to be overrepresented uh, as as problem gamblers' preferred mode of gambling. Um, but not but but not specifically slot machines. We're talking about electronic gambling machines in general. So these include poker terminals. These seem to be what problem gamblers uh, gravitate toward, or at least prefer and play the most when they're in casinos. Now, Gabe, do you see any relationship there between sort of um, schizotypal personalities and sort of the seclusion that Mario was suggesting that comes along with these electronic gambling forms? Or is that a, is that a loose recorrelation that we shouldn't be concerned Well, so, you know, going to schizotypal personality, if you look at one of those factors, which is um, interpersonal difficulty, that could, you know, often might be associated with... Um, preference for maybe isolation or not being able to work or you know um, fluidly interact with people so engaging in a slot machine perhaps might be a way to you know feel some comfort to provide someone a sense of you know enjoyment and escape from those interpersonal difficulties what is the prevalence rate of problem gamblers so yeah if you look back we were talking about that um, three quarters ish uh, body. That's a lot of gamblers, um, at least once a year, anyway. But uh, when you look at how many might actually be engaging in behaviors such as spending more than they can, entering financial debt, wait, uh, spending too much time gambling, you you boil that down to around you know two and a half, three percent of at least the British Columbia population. So with that three percent, that that can sound like a lot and a little simultaneously yeah, yeah. can you give us another uh prevalence rate of something else that we might be able to kind of compare that to just put that in, in our minds sure so um i guess an example would be you know how talking about how we were talking about schizophrenia earlier we consider schizophrenia uh often a very severe disorder and make sure people who have it you know as best we can get treatment and you know, are helped in however which way they can be. Well, the prevalence of that is roughly 1%. So we're talking three times the prevalence rate of schizophrenia. Wow. That's a pretty significant number when you put it in that context, I think. It really uh, is eye-opening, just yeah. the, the sheer volume. And uh, just one last thing to mention there, too. Uh, we're talking about 3% of the British Columbia population who engage in behaviors that you could consider problematic. It's not just affecting those 3%. They all probably have families. And 
gambling, unfortunately, it means that a lot of the difficulties you run into are financially related. So that means you have 3% of the population and their families who are probably being negatively impacted in some way. Wow. Yeah. It, you can see how it, it very quickly snowballs. Uh, exactly. That exactly. that 3% could rapidly rise. You know? mm -hmm. Fascinating. So okay, what current ideas or topics or theories or anything really uh, in your area of research are you particularly interested in pursuing? Uh, so an area that I'm interested in and it looks like mario and i might actually pursue this you, you were saying we don't really work together earlier this is a project that uh we'll probably be joining up on um focuses on you know what's gotten a lot of media attention right now loot boxes so you know the idea of do they represent gambling and if they are um you know how severe are they as a form of gambling and do they act as a way to you know, let people uh, who our use kids, our kids, our, do they yeah, let our yeah, kids gamble? <laughs> exactly. But, you know, but, that, that's really working. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about, uh, more about it another time. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We'd love to have you guys back for an episode on that. I mean, I think now, especially now, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting topic. It's a hot topic right now. Yeah. Especially yeah. with, uh, I think it's Belgium. Belgium was calling for a loot box ban in Europe. So it's, exactly. it's very prevalent right now. So it's something that as it develops, we'd love to have you guys back and, on. And, you know, the idea right there being they're calling for a ban, but does that mean all loot boxes or only a specific type? That That's something we kind of want. Yeah, predatory at. kind of uh, yeah. systems in place to kind of get money from children, essentially. <laughs> I think we, we really got to look deeply at what we consider our definition of gambling to be Definitely. before we can actually kind of, you know, assess loot boxes more, uh, more closely. Now, we're we're kind of hesitant to really talk about anything because we can't really couch that in any existing yeah. research. Yeah. But the kinds of things we are are going to be curious about are like, well, you know, is this like gambling in in the way that it's experienced, either psychologically or or physiologically? And we're going to try and come up with ways to probe those those yeah. answers. And, and but, we'll definitely follow up on that. We're really interested in sounds, hearing. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So. so one thing you had mentioned, though, you know, regarding Belgium and regulation for this emergent form of, you know, possibly gambling, possibly not. Uh, well, there's another area I actually have a lot of interest in. And really, there's not much regulation there right now. And uh, that's um, the concept of cryptocurrency. For people who might not be familiar with that term, you've probably heard of Bitcoin. Uh, well, there's a bunch of other currencies and um, you have websites that have come up that probably aren't the most regulated that allow you to bet, you know, a fraction of a Bitcoin on a slot machine or play a game of dice and try to win another cryptocurrency. So crypto casinos. Crypto casinos, that's what they're called. You got it. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, these are emerging right now and they're just going to uh, keep uh, being developed to be even more um, interactive and polished and will draw people in talking about those structural characteristics so that's an area that i have a lot of interest in because i'm not sure which way that's going to go the way crypto is designed is to try to prevent regulation from really hitting it and you could write a law that says you can't gamble in cryptocurrency i'm not really sure they could enforce that to what degree do you guys consider something like investing in stocks or buying bonds and stuff like that to what extent do you consider that to be a form of gambling <laughs> like when we talk about cryptocurrency right like yeah. you know 
Well, let's think about it. I mean, what what do we consider gambling at its core? What 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 do we think gambling at its core is? It it tends to have to do with money. It doesn't have to necessarily, but generally we think that gambling is is making a a, a stake on some kind of uncertain outcome with the expectation that we could get more back than we started with. Um, is that not what an investment is? Yeah, and, and if people, you know, let's say buying some shares of Microsoft, would people call that gambling? Some people might, but it's also would be considered a relatively safe investment to do. So you kind of hit that wall of if you have enough information and you've done your research on what you're buying into, you know, maybe it's not outright gambling, but still you're, you're staking money to hope for a higher. I think, you know, by and large, it, it, kind of does conform to the the definition of gambling i mean going to grad school maybe that's even a bit of a gamble <laughs> by this definition but and so is everything we do in life getting married and so on and so opportunity forth opportunity cost essentially we're yeah exactly yeah. we're hoping that we're going to get more out of it uh than we put in it's it's a, it is a bit of a gamble um but conventionally we don't we don't consider this a gamble we don't consider the stock market a gamble and the government doesn't most most importantly this is how most people kind of define gambling is by what or whether the activity is sanctioned as such by a governing body would gambling by definition have to be something where the odds are not in your favor essentially or is there would gambling be if you are the house it's not really gambling anymore right well what would odds being in your favor be Owning your own casino <laughs> or, or rigging some sort of situation to be in your favor the majority of the time. I guess th at that point, it's no longer gambling. Right? If, you're lo if you're using loaded die, it's not gambling. It's, is it gambling anymore if you already know what the outcome's going to be? Maybe gambling in another sense. You don't know when the casino's going to drag you back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the way that I, I guess the way I interpret gambling is that uh, you are betting against the odds more or less, to win a greater amount of money. Well, I think we can just more simply say that you're betting on an uncertain outcome, even yeah, though sure. that we know that that outcome has a probabilistic tendency right. to be, you know, this or that. It's still uncertain in the moment when we place that wager. And so yeah. I think we could consider that a gamble. Uh, I think that's yeah. a great way of defining it. Uh, it was put pretty well, pretty eloquently, actually. Uh, better than <laughs> I would ever be able to do that. Um, so, uh, thanks again, guys. This is amazing. Okay first guests for brain buzz we were really stoked that we could have you guys on yeah uh, you got mario just i know i don't want to put him on the spot but he's helped us out a lot technologically uh <laughs> even this tonight podcast <laughs> it's, it's been a it's been a mess but uh hopefully the quality has been quality <laughs> uh and that's mainly due to mario's help with uh with all the technology so thank you mario yeah absolutely we couldn't do it without you so we're, no problem. we're incredibly indebted and appreciative of all the work. And to both of you, uh, we're very indebted for you guys <laughs> rolling the dice and coming on this podcast as our first guests. And, uh, uh, you know, you've made episode three a lot of fun. So hopefully our audience and uh, hopefully you guys have had a really good time with it. I know we have. Forgot Thanks again, guys. We really appreciate you guys coming out. Uh, where can people find you, get in contact with you guys if they're interested in the work that you're doing or, or just asking more questions about the work that you guys are doing. Uh, Mario, where can they find you? I think the best place to contact us is through our uh, the website for the Center for Gambling Research at UBC, which is simply cgr.org.
www.psych.ubc.ca. Uh, psych spelled P-S-Y-C-H. Perfect. And, and those links will be on the website and on our social media. We'll be posting those uh, after this podcast is released. Uh, no emails. Don't want to say <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a, I think that's a smart play. Yeah. Uh, so we'll guide you. We'll guide anyone that's interested in talking to you guys more to your, your lab website. Uh, and it's, again, it's been a pleasure having you guys. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. And, uh, with that, we'll conclude episode three. Thank you all for listening. And, uh, until next time, cheers. Visit your hosts at brainbuzzpodcast.com, send them an email at brainbuzzpod at gmail.com, or reach them at Twitter and Facebook at brainbuzzpod. everything goes performed by poolside the song and the title fit the themes and elements that we want to convey throughout our podcast welcome to the third episode of brain buzz with your hosts drake and kyle today we're going to be interviewing two of our esteemed colleagues from ubc mario and gabriel brooks oh no <laughs> you guys are a cute couple though. you guys are a really cute couple so close. oh god the, 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 the,